Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In the podcast so far, we have been talking about communication from various angles. How do we learn to speak? How do our brains process language? Why does talking matter to us? And how can we help our children discover a passion for words in any language? But what happens if our voice goes unheard or worse, is silenced? Today I am joined by Matilda de la Torre, a graphic designer and illustrator. She has started a project called Conversations from Calais, documenting conversations between volunteers and migrants met in Calais and sharing them with the world by pasting them onto our city's walls. Matilda, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. <laughs> um, so when I first saw your Instagram account, I was stopped in my tracks by what I read. This is the conversation that first caught my attention. You had taught yourself how to speak nine new languages from the day you left your home so you could speak with the people of every country you crossed. I said I didn't know anyone who could speak this many languages. You replied that it was useless anyways because no one ever wanted to speak to you, let alone look at you. Matilda, tell us about the project. What are these conversations? So these conversations are from Calais, as the title explains very clearly. And um, they're conversations that volunteers, uh, myself and many other volunteers have had with migrants that they met in Calais. So for anyone unfamiliar, um, Calais is a city in the north of France, right across from uh, Dunkirk in the UK. And it's where the refugee jungle used to be um, until it was shot down uh, by French authorities. And um, there's still a continent of about 1,500 displaced people, migrants, refugees, defined in a lot of different ways, um, people living there at the moment. So the project aims to basically rehumanize the way that refugees are portrayed in the media. And by it does this by basically documenting these stories and then pasting them um, on walls to get as many people as possible to read them. Mm -hmm. So the conversations are from lots of different yeah. people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So mm -hmm. it started with my conversations that I had at first since I began the project. Um, but very quickly, as I started sharing them on social media, as soon as the project um, started, I began to receive messages from people who wanted to get involved and who wanted to share conversation that they'd had as well. And I very quickly thought that was a really great idea and it was also a way to make the project much more sustainable because I only go back to Kelly ever so often and I don't have an unlimited amount of conversations that I could or wanted to share. Of course, of course. So how um, and when did you start the project? Has it been going a while? So the project started in October 2019, but I've been going back and forth um, to Calais ever so often um, for two years now. And I think I always felt when I came back here very frustrated um, about having a life in Calais and having a life here and not being able to share as much as I wanted about what I experienced there with people here. 
Um, so I think subconsciously, and when I was in Calais, I was always drawing and writing some things with, about the people that I met or what I felt. So it was an idea that was, I guess, building up for a long time, but it only really began, um, yeah, in October last year where I thought I just had to start it because I think I felt very apprehensive and very scared about how to approach the topic because there's so many ethical implications and there's so many ways, I think, of doing it wrong, um, but actually this way felt really natural and really um, raw and simple in a way. Mm. So it started from that and it's been going on ever since. Brilliant. You call yourself a good designer in inverted commas because you aim to design to do good. So what good is the Conversations from Calais project trying yeah. to achieve? Mm, so I think as a designer in general, I always uh, try and do more and more like socially driven work that has a positive impact and specifically to this project I think the good that it's doing which I define as good but I'm very aware that could be defined as not good from another perspective is acknowledging that um, these people and these lives and these conversations are happening um, I think most of them, as we can read from the conversations, um, are very negative and are very shocking. So it's that idea of bearing witness and of acknowledging that this is happening and that this injustice is happening almost right at our doorstep. Um, so I guess the good in that is showing a realistic view, which I don't think is shown in the media because it's either kind of turned into something completely different or it's not talked about at all because it's not kind of a new hit story and there's nothing new about it. Right, yes. Yeah. Some of the conversations are completely heartbreaking and, um, you know, some of them are really uplifting. So that in turn is then heartbreaking again because I feel like we know that if there is hope, it probably will get dashed and that feels really terrible. So um, do you typeset the conversations yourself? That's my first question. And how do you write these words down in black and white? Is that, is that quite hard? So, um, as I said, I started with my own conversations and um, what I always wanted to have is the voice of the you um, and the I, sort of in the first person, second person, and the you to always be um, the migrant and the I as uh, the volunteer, as all the conversations are from the volunteer point of view, uh, which is something really important because what I always wanted to do with language is kind of show that these are stories from the volunteers' point of view. So they're not rewriting a story about a migrant. They're sharing a very specific moment. Um, and this idea is also that all of the conversations start with the you, and it's kind of putting the migrant as the first thing we're talking about. I think that's really important. And um, the way I started writing them was very naturally, because as I said, it was personal experience. And I knew that I wanted to paste them on a wall, so I knew that... They had to fit on an A3 poster because that's how big my printer went. And they had to be a big enough font so people could read them kind of from afar, but also attract attention. So you'd want to get in closer. Um, so those those were my only criteria. Um, and I guess the process has quite changed now since I get a lot of conversations submitted. Um, so barely any of them are my own now. And um, I, they get submitted in all kinds of uh, formats and um, I kind of go through a process of rewriting them in the same voice that I'm using because I think it's important to keep that same voice. Um, but now it's actually really nice. Um, people are submitting it already written almost in that format. So mm -hmm. sometimes I just 
delete a few sentences just because the stories are too long or I break them up in two or um, if they're really, really similar to another one I've just posted, then I keep that for later. So I go through a process of like editing, but it's very minimal usually. Um, but of course, it still goes through my kind of um, perspective as what I think is meaningful to put on a poster. Um, and the black and white design is supposed to be, I mean, really, really simple, really simple font. And the reason for that is because I think with in the media um, and in the cities around us, we're completely like bombarded by images and color and crazy fonts and crazy headlines that kind of bringing it all back to actually what is really important here is the content and is not um, and that speaks for itself. So really bringing back to that. Um, was important was why I chose like a really straightforward design great okay so I can't think of a better way to proceed now than actually reading some of these conversations aloud so it's actually probably not very easy for us to read or for the listener to listen to but I'd really want to give the listeners an idea of what these posters contain so what follows are Matilda and I reading a few of these conversations from Calais aloud you showed me pictures of your family on your phone and I could see you smiling in the light of your screen. You showed me a picture of your mother. I said she was beautiful, and you suddenly went quiet. Later, you told me you hadn't seen her in a year. Her number didn't work anymore, and you had no other way of contacting her, but you still tried ringing her every day. You were telling me about your past in Iraq. I asked you what you had studied, and you replied, medicine. You said you were a surgeon until you had to escape. And now, you said, you were here, sitting in the mud, waiting for a miracle that may never come. You told me that when crossing the desert, your friend had died in your arms and made you promise not to tell his mum he was dying. So you buried your friend and his mum still didn't know that her child was dead. Heartbreaking. There seems to be an amazing amount of resilience and hope in the conversations. And then the very next conversation dashes that hope. It's almost like Shakespeare who juxtaposes comic scenes with the pathos and the, the tragedy, one next to the other, and it, it's highly emotive. So how do you um, cope with typing it up and putting it out there? Are you doing it in kind of a once-removed kind of a way? Um, yeah, it's a really difficult um question and I think um, the hardest part to be honest is having these conversations in real life and I think when I'm here and doing the work um, because this is something else that is really important to me is I don't do any of this project when I'm volunteering Calais because I think um, the day-to-day -day, um, volunteering and help that can be done there is way more important um, so I only work on this when I'm in London and I think um, you do have to remove yourself, or I do, uh, a bit from what I'm doing, uh, just because it is obviously super emotionally heavy. But at the same time, what I always tell myself is that I have the emotional, instabi like emotional stability right now at least to be able to bear these conversations. And I think it's a more important um, kind of task to get them out than um, to kind of focus on what I'm feeling and that's also because now I've been to Kelly you know a few times and I'm I guess you have to kind of um almost 
be even more hopeful when you're there to counteract what is happening. And I think that's that kind of idea of hope is really important when you're there um, mm. because you get extremes of humanity. So you get people living in some of the most horrific conditions that I've ever seen, especially that I've seen in France um, or in Europe. But you also get the most humanity I've ever seen anywhere because all these organizations are grassroots grassroot organizations. They're volunteer-led. And, I mean, there's um, one or, like, a few warehouses where all the organizations kind of um, distribute the food from, cook the food. Um, I mean, there's so much, like, legal advice, phones, Wi-Fi, all of that. But everyone leaves with vans to the, ser to the several locations from those warehouses. Mm. And the amount of positivity and hope and kind of empathy that you see in those warehouses is so much more than I've ever seen anywhere. And I think that's kind of shows that it's almost like a rebellion built on like empathy and love against the governments. So I think that kind of hope and positivity is something that I keep reminding of myself when I'm here and when I'm doing this project and the reason of why I'm really doing this. Yeah, that's there is a lot. I'm, I was amazed by how much aspiration there is in the conversations. Um, so, for example, here's another one. You were playing the violin in front of a huge crowd. I watched you in awe. You said the UN had given it to you in Serbia and you had carried it with you ever since. When the police came, you would hide it in a bush so they wouldn't destroy it. Later, you told me that your violin had been smuggled to the UK. You didn't have enough money to pay for your own journey, so you paid for your violin. You wanted to study music at Oxford one day. You asked me if the world knew this was happening, if the world knew you were here, if the world knew your tent was taken from you almost every night, if the world knew the police was spraying tear gas on you almost every day, if the world knew this was living hell. And all I could do was whisper, yes, yes, the world knows. You were staring up at the sky with your son. I asked you what you were looking at, and you answered you were looking for planes. You said you were an aerospace engineer back home before you had to leave, and you wanted to show your son the planes from down here. So, Matilda, from the conversations that get submitted to you, that come in, do you, do you notice a theme of hope, or are you kind of seeking to bring that out? So, um, all of the... Con I think the conversations are all really varied, and that's really important because... That's kind of exactly what I'm trying to do is show that there isn't one narrative that can describe a migrant story or refugee story. Like there isn't a narrative that can describe all of our stories. Um, but of course, there is hope because some of the people, the migrants that I've met and that I think um, most of the volunteers have met in Kelly are so hopeful. And I think on a journey that difficult, especially in a space um, like Cali, I haven't been to any other refugee camp, so I can only kind of talk about that experience. But there's so much hope um, that you need to keep in order to keep moving mm. and reach kind of wherever you want to go, which in Cali is mostly the UK, if not for all of them. Um, so there is hope, but I'm not it's not something that I purposely want to bring out to kind of um, give a more positive um 
I guess, tone to the project, not at all. I'm very truthful to what gets submitted. And I think it's just one of the things that is very um, apparent when you're on the ground. So that's something that comes up in the conversations as well. And are you kind of doing things chronologically more or less as they come in? Or Yeah, so usually... What I do is every two weeks, I go through a process where I go through all the conversations that have been submitted and then I type them up um, and then I go out after that and paste them up. So it kind of, yes, it's chronological, but it's not really exact. And some of them that I've pasted, I had forgotten about some of the conversations and I pasted them this week. So it's not supposed to be chronological um, and at least not for now. Mm. Um but they are kind of as I receive them. Cool. There are several conversations that show how badly the police are treating refugees. So, for instance, you said that the police woke you up by kicking your tent. You said they continued even after you told them your three-year-old child was inside with you who was terrified and started to cry. You said the police made you get out of your tent, then slashed it with a knife and took it away. You told me you had seen the police push a bird's nest to the floor, breaking all of the bird's eggs. You had been taking care of it in one of your jumpers. The police don't care for life, you said. You were sitting on a bench looking down at the ground. I sat down next to you and pointed out there were lots of ants there. You laughed and said they were lucky because in Europe animals had better lives than refugees. You said you were going back to Syria. I asked you if it was safe there. You answered you didn't care. At least if you died there, it would be with dignity and in your own country, instead of dying here like an animal. I am struck by how much dignity there is in these voices in the face of these terrible conditions and treatment from the law enforcers. And it sounds like you really haven't exaggerated this at all, that the violence is actually a everyday feature of life in Calais. Yeah, so this is something I want to make extremely clear. I don't exaggerate um, anything, whether it is really negative or really positive, um, of yeah any of the conversations. The physical and especially mental manipulation that the migrants have to go through from the police in Calais is horrific. Um, it's one of the worst things I've ever experienced. And I think it's, from my experience of going back for two years, it's getting worse and worse, which is um, horrible. But, so yeah, this is definitely not something that I exaggerate. And I want to share this, not to shock people, but to kind of, this is one of the true things that happens. And if I'm portraying everything that happens, then that's something that fits into it. And I think it's important that governments start to be held accountant for these kind of things. And this is French police that is being asked to be there and to um, act this way. So I think it's important for me to share because it's happening every single day and every single night. Um, and I think it's just as valuable as showing hope or showing sadness or showing grief or any of the other kind of emotions that are showed in the conversations. Yeah, it's really quite frightening, isn't it? Um, your website says that you wish to avoid simply creating new stereotypes of refugees as heroic figures or helpless victims. So how do you go about ensuring there's a diverse representation through the conversations? It's funny because I think this is something that actually happens so naturally. And that's simply because 
every migrant has a completely different story. Mm. And if we're showing up as many stories or conversation as possible, then naturally we're just going to have um, different kind of types of people and different yeah, journeys that they've had and that's different conversations that they have with volunteers. So it's something that happens quite naturally. However, um, I am, it's one of the things that is for me the most important with the project and that I do try and kind of space when I post and when I share the stories, um, not in the city, but on Instagram and on social media is to have kind of different ones at different times that show different things. Um, and that's because if you only were going to read three of these posters, which you could be, I would want you to see kind of three different um, positions and right. journeys. And I think it's so difficult to navigate like the portrayal of migrants and refugees because you have it on one side being by the media, which usually is making them, yeah, again, as like villains or something really negative. And then you have charities and organizations that are dictating a lot of that narrative as well. And that's really complicated because these charities are trying to raise money and funds to help. And a charity is doing amazing work. But what they're going to have to do is, of course, portray some of these refugees as heroes and as kind of hopeless victims that we need to help. So you have these really different kind of extremities. And what I try and do is show that and show another side and show all the other different sides. And I'll never be able to show everything because I'd have to show every story. But it's just showing as many as possible that I can gather. Yeah, you do have a mixture of voices. There's like old, there's young people represented, um, people from different countries and different backgrounds. Um, um, one thing that's been on my mind is, is there a sense of how family life is valued? It kind of came through to me that um, there is maybe a different way of looking at the family or it's really valued. So one of the conversations says that white people are always trying to move away from our parents when all you wanted was to be near yours. Um that's, I think, a really interesting perspective. Is it creating any reaction in your following? Um, yeah, so to answer your question about family values, I have never worked with families directly in Calais because there's a specific organisation that does that, and or a few, and I just haven't volunteered with them. Um, so I can't. I haven't had much interaction personally with families there. However, so kind of the conversations that are very family led are submitted by volunteers that um, volunteer in those organizations. However, um, that conversation, uh, which I thought was really interesting, you brought it up because it's actually one of the ones that has brought the more um, attention and that right. on social media, most so many people have sent me messages about. And I was it, the conversation doesn't come from me. It comes from someone else. Um, and I was really shocked when I read it as well and I think it's really interesting when um, you have so many different cultures and backgrounds and countries where people move away for career or studies or projects or relationships or whatever it is and kind of that story shows a very specific point of view where you wouldn't do that um, and you would kind of be extremely family oriented and that's fine. There's so many different ways, I guess, to live life and to live with or not with your family. But what I found so beautiful was the amount of people that messaged me and said that this made them want to call their mom or call their brother or kind of remember that there is so much value in family life and being there with your family. And again, that's kind of bridging the gap between you and me and a migrant or anyone else. And it's like, yes, 
we're going through all different paths of life in all different kinds of way. But at the same time, the things that bring us together are exactly the same. And that's family and being cared for and being loved and all of those kinds of things. So again, it shows that exact point of actually we're all the same and we're all have the same or similar kind of needs and desires. Um, yeah. Yeah. It does. It really reminds you, doesn't it, to be grateful for not having been taken from your family or separated exactly and when I think in those kind of conditions I mean one of the most heartbreaking things that I see is people who aren't even able to contact their family Mm. I can't imagine anything worse so of course you're going to have that kind of extreme reaction when you're there but if you can take that away and then remember kind of the value of loved one whether it is your family or anyone else I think is is really beautiful yeah, there, there's a theme of loneliness um, and isolation in some of the conversations. Here's one example. You told us you were 15 years old. You told us that you had left home and made the journey here alone. And now that you were here, you were still alone. What kind of response is the project getting, Matilda, kind of online and also around the world? How many countries or cities has it appeared in? This is all very odd and very overwhelming to me because I started the project, as I said, in October, really randomly, I have to say. And I went down to Dover and I pasted the first posters in Dover because that's obviously kind of one of the closest places to Calais. And that's the coastline where a lot of the people arrive and that kind of thing. And as soon as I started them on social media, it seemed like there was a spark and that this was something that people had been missing and it was different to what other organizations or projects because there's been so many amazing projects being done around these kinds of themes but it was very different and I guess it was very simple so I've been super like humbled and overwhelmed by the amount of attention it's got um online I guess um it's been like Instagram and this is kind of the positive side of social media and the reason that I met you as well is kind of it brings people together so quickly um and you can really reach really far um from your circle and your kind of bubble yeah absolutely just for context Matilda and I started speaking a week ago on Instagram because my friend sent me a link to your Instagram and it immediately you know changed everything for me so yeah and I think um basically uh before what I used to do before we had a website because that's quite new I just uh like built it in January um I used to email people the conversations so I knew exactly where they were being pasted up so until January I knew that there was posters being pasted in 50 cities around five different continents Wow. Which seems a bit mad. That's great. 50 (laughs) Um, cities in five continents. Yeah. And that was in January. Now Mm. I don't really know because Mm. this process was extremely long and like Mm. time consuming. So I've just made it like an automatic download from the website. So I can't really keep track. I do see from people when tag me on Instagram, which is always so nice to see that we're in Copenhagen and in Germany and in, Mm. yeah, all over. Um, Online, I think it's gone attention because um, I went to the Refugee Solidarity Summit here in London uh, two weeks ago now and someone posted the posters uh, because I had pasted them all over the event. Uh, It was a collaboration with them um, on Facebook and the post got like 10,000 shares. Um, So if you've seen the colourful posters, then that would be that thread of shares. And I think from that, I've gotten a lot of um, interest in the project and people wanting to collaborate and get involved and making it um, bigger, which is amazing. And I'm so happy that the project is 
led like that where I didn't really know what it was going. I still don't know where it's going, but I just know that, I mean, I'm super happy to bring people together to being, for it to be seen by more people and heard. Um, and at the same time, if it goes into a different direction, let's do that. If it goes into, mm. um, yeah, I don't know what. It's really we'll connecting see. people, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's, I think, so important because it makes you realize that you can do something and, I'm not saying that I'm changing the world here or changing the law, of course not. But it is kind of a way to see that there is interest in there and there is, um, people are wanting to do things. I never thought anyone would want to paste up mm-hmm. posters with homemade glue, with flour at home, but apparently they do. So, and that's something as well that I want to mention is that none of my idea was to get people to paste them up or get conversations from others. It was always people messaging me and being like, hey, can I do this? And it was from that. So it's really like, open and collaborative and I'm super open for people to just say like oh can we do that so someone messaged me today that um in her town she doesn't really feel like pasting stuff around the city which is completely fair enough and she asked me if she could print it on some tote bags um to then kind of raise awareness mm-hmm. about that which I think is a great idea so I'm super open for people to do yeah, anything no, it would really. work on postcards as well wouldn't it yeah that you could leave in different sort of locations yeah yeah um are all the conversations happening in english so all of the conversations i ask for them to be submitted in english mm-hmm. um because uh that's the way the posters are written yeah um however they can be happening in any language um so i mean there's so many languages that are spoken in kelly and a lot of the volunteers speak more than like just English so they could be happening in any language I'm not aware of them because I asked them to be submitted in English because mm-hmm. I noticed you can download say like a French version have you translated it yeah so yeah. again yeah. this was something from someone told me I want to put them in France but I know that in my city people don't really speak English so they're like can I translate them and I was super happy for that to happen um, so now they're being translated in They've been translated in like French, Spanish, Portuguese, Hungarian, Czech, Polish, German. Great. So many languages. And that's, I don't speak as many languages as that. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's people approaching me and asking to really, really kindly translate them, which I know is a difficult task. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's really amazing. And that means that, again, more people can can read it and understand them. So are you looking for more translators to get involved with yeah, that? Yeah, if people are um, interested, there's kind of a link on my website to kind of email me. You can tell me whatever language you speak and you'd like to translate them. That's Always a bonus. <laughs> cool, brilliant. So here's another um, conversation that I shall read that really struck home. Your English was perfect and you told me you had learnt in school. You'd studied English literature at university. You asked me about the UK legal system. You wanted to claim asylum the minute you arrived and were worried you wouldn't find anyone. I told you not to worry, that they would definitely find you. So, Matilda, there's a lot of apologising for the decisions um, of governments or the closing of borders or the lack of clean water and shelter on the part of the volunteers. What What's the feeling amongst the volunteers? Um, I think this is one of um, the hardest things about being in Calais is that you always feel like you're not doing enough because, yes, you're giving tea, shoes, food, Wi-Fi, legal advice, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, you're going home to your bed and there's people living on the streets when no one should be living on the streets, let alone when it's this cold. And that's 
something that you are, I think, I found myself constantly apologizing. And I'm not British. I don't even apologize that much when I'm in London. But there it's it's overwhelming. And it's one of the things that I found most difficult when I first went there. It's you're so like you're what you're able to give is feels so inadequate and mm -hmm. feels so little. Um, so, of course, there is value in being there and doing as much as you can. But I think every volunteer feels like they're not able to open borders and not they're not able to kind of get someone in a warm bed straight away. And that's so unfair. Mm. Um, so I guess it does come out in the conversations because it and inevitably it's something that you feel so much when you're there. Shall um, we um, have a couple of examples? So. Yeah. You were angry that we didn't have your shoe size. You showed me the sole of your trainers and it lifted up like a flap. I knew we had nothing for you. I would have given you mine, but they were too small. I said sorry. I was always saying sorry. You were stood in the camp and it was already the third time I had seen you here. You told me you were stuck here. You could not go back and you could not move forward. Once again, I had nothing to offer you but a cup of tea. So what can people do, people who are listening, how can they help the project? Can we do more than offer a cup of tea? Um, yeah, so I actually have, because this is a question that a lot of people ask me, which I completely understand. And I think it's once you find out about what's happening, it's like really overwhelming and you want to be able to do something to help. And I've outlined, I guess, some of the ways you can help. Um, and I think I'll share, I guess, the four most important ones for me. Um, and the first, I think, is to be open-minded and to kind of continue raising awareness about what is happening in Calais by sharing it on your social media, by not refusing to talk about it and by pasting it on your walls in your city if that's what you need to do, but being open and showing about what's happening um, and getting as many people aware. Um, the second thing, I think, is to be political. Yes, as you said, we can show up and we can give a cup of tea and we can volunteer and that's amazing. However, there needs to be systematic governmental change that happens in order for these lives to be improved. And I'm just talking about Calais here. I mean, the amount of people that are affected, displaced people that are affected by migration and the way that uh, so many countries are not really dealing with it is enormous. Mm. So I'm like, a, this is what I'm talking about, is this like tiny bit of the whole conversation. Um, so yeah, demanding change, voting for people, for MPs or for presidents that are addressing these issues and that are implementing change. Um, the third thing I would have to say is, is be active. It's donate money or time to organizations that are helping. If you want to go to Calais, that's great. If you don't want to go to Calais, there's so many organizations in so many cities that help integration of asylum seekers once they've arrived. I mean, Calais is a journey and no one wants to stay there. It's very short term. And that's the difficulty of what you're doing there is that you feel like everything you're doing is really fixing the short term. But there's so much work to be done once migrants have reached wherever they want to stay and integrating and helping in that. If not donating money, these charities always need money. Um, and there's a list of which ones to support on the website as well. And the last thing, I guess, um, which is an easier thing to do is just be generous. I mean, there's so many... Um, businesses, cafes, restaurants that are led by asylum seekers or that employ asylum seekers in order to produce their clothes or their whatever it is. So I think it's 
look at where your money is going and look at where it can go so that it's supporting these businesses and these um, these people. I mean, it strikes me as a lot like the environment issue, actually, that people can feel so overwhelmed by the climate crisis um, that yeah. you just maybe don't do anything. But actually, you can yeah. make small in, you know incremental changes can't you exactly and I think it's the same thing as any big issue sometimes it can feel like you're just a drop and you're doing one tiny little thing and it's not helping anything but again it's like everything if everyone does one little thing you can really see and I've mean I've seen a change when I go there like yes I'm just going out to give a meal but when you see you give someone a meal and the gratefulness that people feel just for having that one meal or that one tent or that one just exchange when you're not talking about how to get to the UK. It makes it can make such a big difference. And you have to keep that going um, in order to maintain hope and kind of positivity, I think. Every small drop makes the ocean, doesn't it? Um, where can listeners find out more about conversations from Cali? Yeah, so we have a website, conversationsfromcalais.com, very easy. And Facebook and Instagram um, have, I post uh, regularly, almost every day, all of the conversations. So again, it's Conversations from Calais. And then I guess around the streets, if people see them, <laughs> sometimes I get messages from friends that are in Edinburgh, like, look what I saw on the wall this morning, which is amazing. And um, I love when people share those with Inst on Instagram with me, it's always really, really nice to see. Yeah, I had a look on Twitter on the hashtag because I don't know whether you're on Twitter. Oh, yeah, I don't use Twitter, right? Yeah. I should probably get on that. <laughs> Twitter's great, but there's a hashtag, Conversations from Calais, and it's really? got quite a lot of posts on it. So ah, the message is spreading. Yeah, and I guess that's the beauty of it, that like so much is controlled just by people like, yeah, continuing the process. And I do a part of it, but this whole process would never be if it was just me it would never have gone this far and so much of it is just people again it's like an organization of volunteers in Kelly it's standing up and be like we're going to do something about it and doing a small action yeah so you already said that you don't really have like an ultimate direction you haven't got a kind of a plan it's unfolding as you go but have you got a dream like what might be an amazing outcome for the project I mean, um, I have, I guess, little dreams. Um, so, I mean, being here on a podcast is super cool. I never thought this would happen. Um, and I guess I would love for these stories to get on billboards. Um, it's really complicated. If anyone listening works for billboard companies, please get in touch. Um, it's a struggle. I would love to uh, start giving kind of talks and workshops in schools, universities, um, offices, just kind of being able to be in a space and give context to what I'm doing and why I'm doing this and keeping the conversation going to just reading um, a poster. Mm. And because that's one of the problems with social media as well. Sometimes you kind of fall into this eco chamber or this bubble of people. I'm speaking to people who are already on my side of the battle. And like it's it's sometimes it can feel a bit useless. So I think being able to involve more people in the conversation that have no idea or no interest mm. or having very, very opposing opinion on what is happening. That would be great. Um, and I guess, I mean, the real big dream is like for this to kind of get people to want to make a change and make a change, whether it is really small in their community or in like their governments and for governments to, again, take responsibility for what's happening. Um, and yeah, mm -hmm. for this issue to be tackled somehow. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's good design in the, you know, design for good. There's that can help us communicate better about these difficult things. 
Yeah, I mean, I think how I see design is that it always um, is trying to communicate something clearly and effectively so that whoever the viewer, reader, um, whoever is engaging with that piece of design can kind of get out of it what you want to get out of them. And for me, this feels like good design because um, it's helping us communicate about difficult things. And there's always difficult things that we're going to be experiencing um, they can be extremely difficult, like some of the stories we've read today yeah. or something much simpler. But I feel the responsibility as a designer that this is something I've encountered and it's something I'm going to keep making work about. And design plays a role in it in order to make it as absorbed as effectively and clearly as possible and hopefully make an impact. <laughs> Great. So let's finish with one final conversation. You asked me if I had seen those photos of white people coming to Sudan. You said the white people always looked so happy, smiling with the locals. You said they always felt welcomed in your country because they were treated as guests in your home. So you asked me why you didn't deserve the same treatment in Europe. I didn't know what to answer. Thank you so much, Matilda, for bringing these conversations to our attention. Uh, listeners, you know how to get in touch with Matilda and please do start spreading the word. Translate the conversations help these voices reach the widest audience possible by sharing the conversations, maybe posting them on walls, on posters, or sharing across your social media, and bearing witness to the stories of those who are so often considered as voiceless.